Welcome back to the Tuneful, Beatful, Artful Music Teacher Podcast. I am excited that you're here with me for this episode. When I first entered the Fire Robin realm, one name came up time and time again, Sister Lorna. Over time, I learned that Sister Lorna, or more formerly known as Dr. Lorna Zemke, played a huge part both in Dr. Fire Robin's music ed journey and in American elementary music education. Dr. Lorna Zemke is director of the Kodai programs and director of graduate music studies at Silver Lake College in Wisconsin. She's an experienced teacher at all levels, and she has taught graduate and undergraduate courses, presented workshops, clinics, demonstrations, and lectures throughout the United States and abroad for years. She initiated a Music for Tots program at Silver Lake College, classes for children from birth through age five that enrolls approximately 200 children every semester. In 1986, Sister Lorna developed a well-known program published both in English and Korean that's called Love Notes, Music for the Unborn, that teaches expectant parents how they can use music as a bonding language with their unborn babies. She has received outstanding honors for her service and leadership in the field of music education and has also published many music education articles and books. In this, the first episode of a series here on the podcast with Sister Lorna, you will learn about her musical journey, starting as a young girl in Wisconsin, all the way through the six incredible months she spent in Hungary observing music classes, talking to the teachers, meeting Zoltan Kodai, and collecting data for her doctoral work. There's a lot to learn, so let's get to know her. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be here. Um, it's nice to have you. I, I have been wanting to interview you since we sat down in Chicago uh, at the FAME conference and um, interviewed you with Dr. Fireobin. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear about music in your childhood as you were young and then eventually how you came to a place where mm-hmm. you know, music became such a part of you that you decided, I'd like to teach music. Good. I'd be happy to, to tell you. Well, first of all, I'm the youngest of eight children. Okay, that's a lot. So I had four brothers, and then, of course, there were three sisters. And they were all born, like, you know, two years after each other until they got to the brother right next to me. So there's a five-year difference between the youngest and myself. They're all deceased, by the way. I'm I'm the only one living. But anyway, so as a result, that I need to tell you that because that shapes exactly what happened to me. I bet. I was the spoiled baby. <laughs> See, I was the baby. My mother was 36 when she had me. Right. And incidentally, I was born on her birthday. Aww. So she always had some significance right. with that. Right, But Extra anyway, so, so as a child, um, I really think that I must have been a very active child because at four years old, they enrolled me to take piano lessons. So I started oh. piano when I was four. All right. And um, this is kind of a beautiful little story, so I'm going to tell it. Naturally, we were just coming, I was born in 1933. Okay. So we were just coming out of the Depression, I guess, the country at that time. And so money was scarce, you know, and sure. having eight children and this, wow. I need to, don't need to draw that picture. But here's the beautiful part. When I started piano, my piano lessons cost 25 cents. <laughs> so this was a big thing in our house. Right. Mom had a little jar on the bottom shelf of her kitchen cupboard. And she would make sure that there was 25 cents in there before my next lesson. And she'd inform everybody in the house, my name was Pat, Patsy. She'd say, that's for Patsy's music lesson. Nobody take no that touch. change. Don't touch. <laughs> so... When I got older, I cherished that because I knew what this meant for my and mother. What it cost in every and every way. It, but the fact that she was so determined. Was anybody was, else, excuse me for interrupting, was anybody else taking lessons? No, you, no. They didn't have the money. Right. They, they were musical. I could tell just my brother played trumpet by ear and things mm-hmm. like that, you know. But uh, not, no one ever had an opportunity to mm-hmm. study music. But anyhow, so that was my beginning and um, I was afforded a lot of little opportunities to so-called show off right. because, you know, I remember specifically when I was five years old, 
I played uh, one of Dvorak's simple little, it was a little, like a one note in one hand and one note in the left hand, you know, like when I was five years old over the radio. Oh, my in, word. In Oshkosh. How'd that happen? <laughs> I have no idea because I, I was five at the <laughs> time. And um, I recall uh, having to stand on a chair to get to the microphone that they had in the studio because it wasn't one right. that they could bring down. Then they had a piano there with another mic, and I played my little piece. So I was five Aww. years so, and I, it was just natural to me. I, I, I never remember being frightened or anything happening or... You know. Right. So the reason I'm telling that is music was obviously important to my mother especially sure. and to my dad that they provided opportunities, however these things happened. Mm. And so from then on, I took lessons consistently okay, all the way through. Now, I went to a, a Catholic elementary school that also had a grade nine. So all the way through school, I was trained by the sisters that I know, the congregation I belong to. And so in my mind, that was the choice. I always wanted to be a sister. Uh -huh. Always. So after I completed ninth grade, here at the convent, they had a, an academy. Was it at this convent? At, yes for girls who were interested in, in religious life. And so my parents gave permission for me then, after ninth grade, to finish my high school here at the academy. So I joined the community then right. after that. Uh -huh. so, so I've had music all the way. So when I came to the convent, I was a, a sophomore. I was going to be a sophomore in high school. And they needed an organist, so I was the community organist when I was a sophomore in high school, in high school. At, the, at the in the academy. So I'm telling that because my musical training was continuous; sure. it was not from interrupted. From four years yeah, old on, yeah, from a lot of years. singing. I love to sing. Not that I'm a, I don't have a good voice, but I enjoy singing. When it came time for me to begin college, which was here at now Holy Family College. <laughs> um, I really wanted to major in history. Really? I so you didn't music. have an intention of pursuing it professionally? No, music. I did not. But you would probably No, I play didn't, even though I had been making music and accompanying choirs and all, sure. convent organist and all. No, I really didn't. I thought it was time for me now to do something else. And I loved A history. real job. <laughs> yeah. But the, the head sister of the, the whole music system she said, you better reconsider that. We want you to go into music. Oh. Well, in those days, you listen to your... <laughs> I was just going to say, you listen to your elders. You listen to your elders, you know, and I thought, well, maybe I should go into music. So then I did, sure. then I started to major in music, yeah. And were you music education right away? Did you... um, well, it was, at first, it's just the general courses you have to take just to, you know, to get into sure. you know, music history, music theory, all that. So, uh, but yes, I, it, I had in my mind, I wanted to teach. I wanted to teach music in the schools because mm -hmm. I love children. So as a result of that, of course, my education continued. So after I received my bachelor's, I did get a, I went to USC in Los Angeles and got a master's and a doctorate. So I've had continuous... Mm. Never uh, stopped. Ne never stopped because of the need, people seeing a need, for example, I knew that when I was at the in the master's level, I was coming back here to head the department. Uh -huh, okay. So I knew the things that I was looking for that I had to know sure. in order to Which be, is really to nice be an when administrator. You're yes. So, but anyway, so I'm grateful to not only my family, my parents, but my religious community that gave me the opportunities to hmm. to do things. And, and I think you know, I studied in Hungary, and, yeah. and so. So these were opportunities provided me, not that I sought, but that somebody saw a need and asked me to do this. How so. did you end up at USC? Why there? Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting story. The president of our uh, college was a sister at the time. Her name was Sister Bredin. And they already had registered me for a master's at Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles, a Catholic college. When, and I was teaching in Santa Barbara, and I was going to start the next summer going to Immaculate Heart to start the Masters. And she called me in, in Santa Barbara, California, and she said, Sister Lorna, we, I want to propose something to you. She said, we looked at all the music places 
in the Southwest, all along California, Oregon, and so forth. And we noticed that the music administrators of those colleges, almost nine out of 10, eight out of 10, got their graduate degrees at USC. So she said, and she said, and even the person at Immaculate Heart College that would have been your advisor, she Went got hers USC. at USC. So she said, we're sending you to USC. That's a big change. So I'm the only sister that ever got a degree from USC. Wow. Because it was a private university ultra expensive. expensive. But so then I went for the master's and stayed right on for the doctorate. And you, no, you weren't teaching during that graduate work, were you? I was during the master's because I went summers until, until I got to the point that I had to be on campus for the master's for the final things, you know. So yeah, it was part, part, I was part teaching. I started the master's in summers but then they released me from teaching so I could finish, finish the master's it. and keep in working yeah, towards hard. the doctorate. That's why, that's why it took me so long to do yeah. my master's and doctorate, because I was working and having that's kids. That's right, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's great that you did that, and so wonderful that you have this you know, village of support. Well, and I think you know that the reason some of this happened is because I met Katinka and Erno Danielle. Yes, is, and I want to talk about that. May I, yes, I do? please, okay. please. And I'm thrilled to tell the story because it's, uh, it, it could have been anybody who was there at that time, but I happen to be the one. So after I received my bachelor's degree in music, I was assigned to Santa Barbara, where it's like the army, we get assigned to. <laughs> right, posts. So I was assigned to, to teach at San Roque Elementary School in Santa Barbara. And that was in 1966. Uh, no, in 1964, I believe. I graduated in 64, so it would have been in the fall of 64 that I started there. But anyway, that whole year, Dr. Erno Danielle was the conductor of the Santa Barbara Symphony Orchestra. And he had a, a wonderful policy that before they gave their final concert, the Friday before, they had a day rehearsal, and you could bring students from your schools. Well, I thought this was fantastic. So I would take turns all that year with different grades, take them to the symphony, and then here is the the clincher. I would make the kids write thank you notes to the symphony, to Dr. Danielle. And I'd never correct their spelling, and I never corrected what they said. I thought they'll get a kick out of it. So this went on for a whole year. In June of that year, I got a call and I, it was a foreign voice, and I thought, I had never spoken to Dr. Danielle. And then he, so when I went to the phone, he said, this is Dr. Erno Danielle, and we've been watching your thank you notes from your children with great interest. He said, there's one that I'm going to frame. A fourth grade boy wrote, oh boy. you are the best conductor in the whole world and the only one I've ever seen. <laughs> and he gave a big, boisterous laugh. He said, we enjoy those notes so much. He said, sister, my wife would like to meet you. He said, uh, we will go to your church on Sunday. He said, we're Catholic. We'll go to your church on Sunday. Can we come to the convent afterward? No, this absolutely happened. So the, after Mass, the doorbell rang, and I went to the front, and I had never seen her, and I had only seen him on the podium, and he, she grabbed his wrist and said something in Hungarian. And I thought to myself, well, this is really a little bit interesting. You, nor- you normally don't because people don't know what you're saying, sure. obviously. But then he said, my wife would, would like to talk to you something about music. So we went inside and sat in one of the visiting rooms. And she said to me, um, do you know anything? She said, have you learned anything about Zoltan Kodai? Well, Missy, a young, I just graduated right. with my bachelor's. I mean, I own the world, you know. Of course, and you I know said, everything. I said, well, of course. I said, I know he's a 20th century composer. And she said, do you know anything about his way of teaching children in the schools? I said, I didn't know he had one. And she said, you're going to enjoy this now. She said, would you like to learn? She said, I would take your first grade, because this was before we're going to start the new year in, right. in the September. 
And I would, she said, and no, no uh, salary, no recompense, nothing. I would do it because it would be an experiment for me to use your children. I would take your first grade. Now, Missy, you're going to laugh at this because my first thought was, good, I would have one less class to teach. Gonna, it's a prep time. <laughs> I mean, imagine, time. imagine how dedicated yes. I was. We all are very dedicated in that same way. But when she, when I, so we talked about it, and then she started in September, and the first class I saw her teach, I honestly thought I was going to faint. I had never seen such artistry in motion with first graders, the way she handled those kids and what she did. And then in my heart, I said, Lorna, you've got to learn everything you can about this. Mm. So to be honest, I, and I want to say this, I say this all over, this could have been whatever music teacher had been there sure. at that time, but I was the one that was there. And so she took me figuratively by the hand and all through taught me, you know, which I would teach for her and she would correct me or oh give word. me a suggestion. I had this model, you know, this model, and I'd Constant watch her master teach. class. Yeah. And little did I realize that, that we were one of the first places in the United States where a program was really set up that was a continuous program. Right. So what began to happen? So, of course, then I was there for uh, uh, two years or three years before I had to go and finish off my doctoral work. Right. But I would go back on weekends and watch her and keep learning with her. And she would set up for me to give workshops. Instead of taking them herself, she'd say, I can't take it, but I'm going to send one of my students, you know, so... That's really how I how I got out there sure. to do things. And then in the course of that whole thing, um, Dr. Danielle, this went on, and of course then I was I didn't complete my doctorate till I was here because I had to write the dissertation. But that was the thing. Katinka says to me, my master's is on what we did in Santa Barbara in those two or three grades. That is right. my paper. But when I got to the doctorate, Katinka says, you will write your program on Zoltan Kodai. <laughs> Wasn't there a was, question. There was no dissertation in English that had been written yet at that so point. So yours was the first. So, so then Dr. Danielle, the husband, says, and we have an idea. The uh, ISMA conference, the International Society for Music Ed conference, was in Moscow. Okay. In Russia, he said, you must go to Russia. Now, this was 1970 by this time. So he said, you must go to Moscow because all the, 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 all the important, all the people that know things about music in the world are going to be there. And mm. I'm this kid from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. <laughs> not, you know, he said, you need to be in that milieu. Yeah. And, and he said, all the Hungarians who are significant will be there. Because then I was going to be going into Budapest after I left Russia. Right. So this was quite a thing. This was during the Cold War. I was just going to say. And, and, you know. So, and I went alone. I wasn't part of a tour group. Thank you. And of course, I'm I didn't go. I couldn't go as a sister. Right. Because I wouldn't have gotten into the country that so way. So you just, you were like so I was incognito. Inco they, of course, they knew. They do the research sure. on you. Oh, I'm sure. And the State Department had sent me a letter said, do not use the title sister at any point, you know, just your, and, and use the title doctor, even though I didn't have it. Right. They said, because what you're going to be doing, that'll open doors for you because they respect the education yes. that we have in the United States. And so, hmm. that, you know. Did they ever get a, a moment where they thought, she's going to leave us, you know, and if they did, be a big wig? Missy, if they did, I don't know. About That's it. wonderful. If they did, I don't know. So many people do not have that kind of support. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have no idea. Hmm. So they Good. supported me during the whole thing. All right, so let's hear about how long were you over? Six that? months, approximately six months. So And I got into 55 classes. So I started with early childhood and then went all the way through to, uh, I saw people at the, I, at the Francis Academy. You know, so I saw oh, that's the crazy. I saw the whole. So you education. were visiting classrooms. I was visiting classrooms. They knew I was coming. I had to pay a stipend to the government, which of course was run by Russians by this time. Let me talk a little bit first about the education system. I mean, now this is this is not due to the communists because they had this education system for decades before the Russians came in. Mm -hmm. But I had never in my life seen 
an education system as perfect as the one in Hungary. I, I can't tell you, Missy, what I went through, even watching the two-year-olds. I was just, I thought, these two-year-olds and two-and-a-halves and threes are like our six-year-olds. But um, just tell me, let me tell you one experience that blew me away. I went into the first eighth-grade classroom that I went into where they were having music. I think it was Helga Sabo. She was one of their top musicians. And she said to them, she said she took out a Lassos Motet, eighth graders, and it was a soprano alto, and I think it was a high baritone, or maybe it was tenor, I'm not sure what the boy, what the, the voice was, but it was very close to alto voice, you know. And she said to them, have you ever seen this before? They said, Nem, no. So she said, where, where are the sopranos starting? And they figured out the syllables where they started, the altos, the, and she took her tuning fork, and they all got their pitch. They sang it at sight. I thought I was in church because it was obviously a religious motif. Right. They sang it at sight, eighth grade boys and girls. Incredible. I, I could hardly breathe. I, could, I thought this can't be happening. So that was a clincher to me because I had seen also what they were doing in the lower grades. They were magnificent. I mean, I, it, I just can't begin to tell you how advanced their education system was. So if you had to explain to somebody who's not familiar with Kodai and, but saw those results, so if you just had a couple of minutes to say, here's why this works so well. Well, how would you describe Well, first that? of all, it works so well because their basic philosophy is every human being has a right to music. Yes. That is the foundation of the philosophy. I'm pumping my okay? fist in the air. And then, of course, you have to come up with a system that starts developmentally where the students are, and that's what they have developed. Incidentally, I need to say this. As far as I know, Kodai never taught a child. Crazy? But he was the catalyst. He sure. paid for people to go to England he made and Denmark, it and he made it. Ha he made sure his people got trained, and then they came back and hammered out this. Right, built something from what they learned. And he was the stabilizer of the, the entire thing. I, you know, I met Kodai, of course, and so I and I said something about your method. He said he didn't say such. He said, "No, madam, it's not my method. It's the Hungarian way of teaching music." He said, many music teachers have put this together. And he said, and, and I was there, always there, you know, to be, make sure things were going. It, it, it was just incredible. I can't tell you what the things that, it was a singing nation. I go to concerts, I, I, I'll just say one concert that I went, one opera. And the opera was Tristan and Isolde, Wagner's opera. And there was a man sitting to my left and I went with one of the Hungarian music teachers and he had the score for the opera. In the performance. And so he'd look at the score, then he'd look up at the stage, and then he'd look at the... And he, he, obviously he was a, a day worker. His hands were stained mm -hmm. like an iron worker. And I thought, this man must be putting on. So at the intermission, I turned to Emmy, and I said, is he really reading that? She said, well, let's talk to him. So she began to talk to him and ask him questions, and he said, he goes into it, he said, yes, and he said, and the soprano at this point, she wasn't quite, she wasn't quite in, in tune. And he made the comment, he said, she should have practiced more with the syllables. See, they all, all the Hungarians are a singing nation. They all know how to read music. Amazing. I, I thought I would, I just didn't know, I didn't know what to do with myself. And did that start? With, I mean, was Kodai the genesis of that, or had it? Kodai and whoever he was working sure, with way sure. back then. Yeah, he was, mm -hmm. he was the inspiration. So by the time you were there, this is just me wondering, uh -huh. how long had Kodai and his consortium been? I honestly don't know, hmm. but I can tell you this. The first time we heard about it in the United States was in the 50s, okay. and that was with Mary Helen Richards in Palo Alto, California. She was really one of the first, or maybe the first American, to go to Hungary to see what was going on. Hmm. And then she came back, and she uh, wrote her system of charts, Threshold to Music, Okay. Okay. Yes, yes. after she saw what went on. So that's when we became aware of it. Now, how long, I can't, I, I do know some years from my research, but I can't tell you except 
that music was always a priority from way back. Right, yes. You know, that's... 1918, 19, I mean, it isn't that that was a new thing, that they... Sure. Yeah, but in terms of Kodai, I'm not sure exactly what, I can't tag right now, I have to look at my own paper to see what <laughs> year it was, but Bartok and he were at the Francis Academy at the same time. Yes, that I remember. I just didn't know if it was... It like, started with folk song analysis, with going to the villages and collecting folk songs. And then the whole idea was to make it available to the Hungarian people. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So you were there for six months. Uh, not quite six, almost okay. six. But almost six. Yeah. And then um, had a lot of Americans been there at that point that you could recall? Or? Uh, well, there were, had been a few Americans. Uh, while I was there, when I, I got there in July of 1970, so a sister, Mary Alice Hine, who was one of the key movers in our country, I always say she doesn't get enough credit because Mary Ellis also saw to it that I had opportunities. She was there. She had studied there, I think, the year before or some years before. But she was only there temporarily then. And then Lois Choksi had been there for a little bit of time. But I was, I, as far as I know, I was the only one that was consistently there for those months at that time. Sure. But other Americans had been there. Betsy Mall had studied there for years. Right, right. You know, for years. So, I mean, no, this was not a unique thing for me to be there. But at that yes. point, I'm just saying, you're kind of one of the forerunners well, in coming terms, back. Probably in terms of actually getting into the Hungarian research. Absolutely. I mean, I had to find the materials, and I had to talk to people who told me which books I should be picking up. And so if you ever look um, at the at, at my, either my paper or it's been uh, two books came out of the dissertation. So the first book is on the history and philosophy. So if you look at the bibliography, I must have 150, 200 entrances of just Hungarian stuff. Mm. So that was the first time that I think that some American had collected all of that. Right, right. And, of course, the Hungarian uh, star people, um, they all helped me, you know, to know what, what it is I should pick, be picking up. Right. So I would buy the books that I could take back, and then Katinka helped me with the translation of some of that stuff. Yeah, so. that must have been yeah. hard. <laughs> A lot of work. And then you came back. I came back, and I went back to Santa Barbara. Oh, by the way, in between there... Um, when I came back from my master's and I, when I was just, I had all my doctoral work just about finished, I was in Santa Barbara writing my dissertation. But I also taught a course uh, in Montecito. Um, hmm. that one of the Hungarians came and watched me then, Peter Erdai, when he was in the country. So I showed, I tried to show how you could teach these concepts to an upper grade by putting concepts together. So that is also part of my dissertation. And at the same time, the university tried to match another lady with, with a similar personality who was teaching the regular, the regular general stuff. And then we tested the kids. So there's also a chapter on testing those that had the Kodai and, and those who didn't. Those who so, didn't. Well, it, it, was, it was significant, not ultra-significant, sure. but there was a difference. So in other words, I was still teaching by going to Montecito a couple times a week teaching those kids, because I needed that for my research paper also. You were a busy it. lady. Yeah. So that's why the paper wasn't finished I, until I got back here, because right. I was writing all the time, but I was still going out and teaching and giving workshops and things. So hmm. uh, the music experiences were just out of sight. I mean, I, I just can't tell you. The concerts that I attended and the, and what the little they would charge for concerts, you could hardly find a place to sit at a concert. It's just the, the, the anti-American. It's, it's a music. It's a it's a musical society. I wonder what it's like now. That's a good question. Yeah, Maybe I did hear I did hear via work. the grapevine that it, some of it is not like it used to be. But oh. yeah, I don't know. That's the way of it, I suppose. Hopefully, the pendulum will swing, swing one way back. or the other. Yeah, but it was the experiences I had musically were fantastic. Some of the other experiences were not so fantastic. So what was it like being over there? Because I do want to hear... Well, that. remember now that the, the Russians were there. So the, they took over. After. Oh, this is something I don't think most people know. But they can look it up if they don't believe me. Between the time that the Nazis were, were dumped out, right. <laughs> kicked out, and the Russians took over, 
okay, when Stalin then took over the, the Soviet Union, was building the Soviet Union, Kodai was president of Hungary for 45 days. Wait, what? And Zoltan Kodai was <laughs> president of Hungary for 45 days. That's how... This is historic. You can, you can look it up if you don't believe me. I believe you. It's just crazy. So he did it before the Russians made their campground there. And, right. and, Look, yeah. you're hitting the table. So that, well, yeah. I, I, <laughs> so so, so the, it, it took about 45 days before the Russians got established. After, Wait, how did Kodak become the president? I have no idea. Okay, I'm feeling a lot of like masters and I cannot tell you how things for people to do. Oh, I'm not. Sh I'm not sure there's enough for a paper because it, it it was short-lived, you know. So okay. So now tell me about what it was like. Well, I'll tell you first of all that that who I lived with, Katinka Danielle. She was my guardian angel all the time, helping me make decisions. And, and she was there with no, you. No, 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 no. Okay. But she made a link with a uh, Hungarian family where I stayed. Okay. Okay, with the Farkashes. And in that family was a medical doctor and an opera singer. And Maria Farkash was the secretary to Mrs. Kodai. Now, I had met, I didn't say this, but when I went, when I moved from uh, Moscow, which is another whole story, <laughs> I, went to I was in Ketchkamate, which is Kodai's birthplace. Yes. And that's where I met Erzibit Cerny, and that's where... I met Mrs. Kodai. Mrs. Kodai was at least, she must be at least 20, 25 years younger than I am. She's the second Mrs. Kodai. The first one died. Oh, it's weird to even consider a Mrs. Kodai. So I knew her as a, as a friend. Sure. And so um, Maria then was her secretary. So there were times when I needed to know something. She, of course, was my primary resource because of, of knowing Mrs. Kodai. Not that I got inf not that I got books from Mrs. Kodai, but if there was some historical thing I wasn't sure, sure of, I would ask Mari, and then she could ask Mrs. Kodai. What a pipeline! So anyway, I lived with this family in an apartment right down on Otvosh Loran, which is in their main section of Budapest, and um, they were um, they were just wonderful people, just wonderful people. But I also saw the hardships under which they lived. Uh, how they couldn't always get things they needed. Um, I don't want to get too too much into it because I don't want to offend, but they would ask, I can say one thing, uh, there was one that Mrs. the landlady needed a, a door um, for one of the rooms, a new door. She couldn't get permission from the government to put that door up. She wasn't allowed to get, she had, would have had to get permission Why? and show that it was okay for her because so, she says to me, she said, I've been trying to get a door on this, this room for I don't know how many years or whatever. And she said, we just can't get permission. Now, that's only one little incident, and I don't want to go into too many of them. Sure. But that's just one little incident. And these were professional people. These were not, I mean, these were not uh, common, ordinary. They were, they were at one point kind of upper class because right. of the education, you know, and so forth. And they and held I, that in high and, esteem. And, and, that's right. But anyway, but they were wonderful to me, just absolutely wonderful. And um, so, for example, when I got there, Mrs. had to go to the police station with me, and we had to sign in, and how long was Lorna going to be there, and where was I going? And, and I do know that I was followed when I was going to different, different schools. I'd get on the streetcars, and I, I could tell when I was heading for whatever school, sometimes I'd see the same person on, the, on, the, on different days, that, you know, and then they'd stop, like they talk about stopping and looking in the, the windows of the store when I'd stop, you know, and then I'd, they never followed me into the schools, but I knew that I was being right. watched. Yeah. What did that feel like? And when, when I had to ask a question, now remember, I, I'm not, I cannot speak Hungarian, but I learned just the common Basics. things. Where do sure. I do this and where is that? So I had enough Hungarian, but the, the citizens were very, they'd look around all the time before they would ever answer me. And some of them would go, nem, nem, because they knew it. They knew that I was this foreigner, I was an American, and I was being watched. Wow. Yeah. So I, did, I do know that. And um, 
uh, okay, you want to know the incident yes. that when I was called into the police station? I had been there about a month, and all of a sudden one day the landlady got me. She said, the, the police, I, they, they, I said, why? She said, I don't know, but they want to see you, and they want to see you. They want to see you alone. So she was not to go with me. So I went there, and there was a Russian uh, lady. I don't know what her status was, but she obviously could interrogate me. And her English was good enough that we could communicate. And she says to me, we have a plane ticket for you to return to England, to Heathrow, the airport. You are to leave tonight. I said, excuse me? I said, I am here for, for five, six months of research. You are to leave tonight. We have the plane ticket, and we will make sure that you get on the plane back to England. I said, may I ask why? She said, because you are trying to make a religious contact. And Ooh. I said, with whom? Now, Cardinal Mincenti was at the top of the American embassy at this time, self-imposed, because he would have been arrested if he had, you know, and he wanted to stay with his people. Right. Hungary is basically a Hungarian, is a Catholic nation, has been. I don't know what it is now, but anyway. So he wanted to stay with his people, so that he was at the top of the American embassy. And so she said, you're trying to make a contact with Cardinal Mincenti. Well, I said, you know, I was a young woman in my 30s, a lot more gall than I would be, <laughs> you know. Right. I just laughed. I said, you are kidding. I am not, she said. I said, Cardinal Mincenti doesn't know I was born. It doesn't know I exist. Much less that I'm trying to make. I said, how do you know? Now, you're going you're gonna to be surprised at this. How do you know I'm making a religious contact? She said, now you could go to Mass. Mass was offered every day. I mean, you could go to church. Not the professional people. They would lose their, they would lose their job if they would go to, to church, okay? But we could, the common person could go to church. She said, we see you go to church, and we see the priest passing you a white note of paper. That was the, the host. communion? That was the communion. <gasps> I said that. I said that was. I, she was an atheist, obviously. Uh, right. I said that was a piece of bread. We call that a host. No, no, no. She says he was writing something to you. I said, what was he writing? She said, we don't know because we never saw what was on the paper. I said because there was nothing there. Because I ate it. Yeah, she had no idea. Oh my lord. No, no. This part you're going to enjoy. So, I said, I just made this up. I said in my country. If we go to the police station and then we're either put in jail or we have to leave or the country, we're allowed a phone call. Well, Look I just, at you. I just picked that up out of the... <laughs> Sister Lorna PD. <laughs> I just made it up. I had no idea. She says, well, if they do that in the United States, so do we. I said, good. I want my phone call. Oh. She said, who are you going to call? This now, this, this is what got her. I said, Shari Kodai. She's now Shari's name is Sharolta, so by call or by a nickname means there's mm -hmm. a familiarity. As she said, You are so offensive and insulting. Shari was the richest woman in Eastern Europe at that time. So for me to call her Shari, right. she said, You are so insulting. I said, Why? She said, You do not call a lady like that by her nickname. I said, Well, why don't you call her? Yeah. She said, You don't know her. I said, Why don't you call her? So she calls Shari, and she starts here, and all of a sudden the phone, and I hear Shari yelling. <laughs> just yelling. You know? She says, you may stay. I said, I thought so. Boom. So, Drop the nun hammer. <laughs> thank God that I thought of. So when later on when I saw Shari, Shari says, Lorna, she said, first of all, it took me five minutes to know what, what she, she was, was talking, talking about. until I heard your name, because she knew I was going to be over there doing right. the research. She said, when I heard your name, she said, I ragged her out something wryly. Oh. And, of course, they can't touch Mrs. They couldn't touch right, Mrs. Right. Kodai. You know, that is the best story. With all the money. That might it. be the best story ever. I mean, of all the, <laughs> maybe not, but so, top ten. So then, so then I stayed five more months. You know. And were you, after that, were you more nervous or more emboldened? Uh -uh. No, I, I knew I was covered. Man, you were like <laughs> such an American. You right. just were like... Well, then Shari said to me, she said, I'll tell you some of the things I said to her. They said, you, you Russians always want American dollars. 
here Lorna is, because I had to pay to go to different places. Here Lorna's giving, and you only take it in American dollars. Hungarian money was worthless at sure. that time. I'll tell you a story about that. But anyway, so she says, and then you do that to somebody who is leaving American dollars all over Budapest. She said, this makes a lot of sense. Wow. So she, she really railed into what a her. power woman. When I mentioned about, I'll tell you that little story there. Um, I would go to Vienna periodically, which was 200 kilometers. I'd get it. You just had to get out of there because it was so oppressive. Mm. So once or twice I went during that time. But one time when I went, I went to a bank in Vienna. And I, I said, I'd like to change some American dollars for um, uh, foreigns. Foreign was their exchange. And I said, I'd like $10 worth. He opened his drawer. He took every single foreign he had. And I said, no, no, no. I just want $10. He said, you can have it all. It's worthless. He said, the only place you could spend it is in Hungary. Wow. Because a foreign was 40 cents. Okay, and over in the in the West, sure, sure. it was worth forty cents. But anyway, so I had all these forms, you know. But anyhow, that just shows you how poor wow. the economy was. But the economy was really poor. Was it hard to leave there? Was it easy to leave? When I left, no, no, yeah. I was ready to go. I was just I was that. I was ready to leave, and of course, I had done as much as I could do at that point. And there, I was trying to think of that Hungarian that I that she did so much kati for I. Oh, yes. So yes, yes, I yes. watched her teach. Wow, what a teacher. And you watched her in Hungary? In Hungary, yeah. Oh. I saw these Helga Szabó, Aniko Hamvas. These were all the leading musicians. Miklos, Miklos uh, I can't think of his last name now. But anyway, I saw uh, who all were the leading Hungarians at that time. I saw them teach. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's just absolutely fantastic. And you're just taking it all in and yeah. thinking about what you were going to do when you got back here? Well, just collecting research because yeah. I, I, I wasn't still, I couldn't be writing the paper yet. I didn't have anything translated or I didn't, but just to collect things and write, I was writing impressions, keeping a diary of what sure. I saw in the schools. And uh, some cute things happened in the schools too. I was in one, I think it was a second grade class and uh they always had me sitting in the back, and the teacher would explain that I was, they'd say I was a lady from England. You never said you were American. Okay. So, and so, the, the, and the kids would walk by me, and they'd touch my hand, I suppose, because they knew I was foreign, you know. And I didn't know any Hungarian. And they'd say something, and I'd say only what I knew, Najan Sape, which means you're very pretty. <laughs> so I'd say Najan Sape, and finally one boy said to me, he said, is that English lady deaf and dumb? Because all she ever says to us is we're all pretty. <laughs> he said to them, that Helga Sabo told me, she laughed. She said, you, oh, you should funny. know what that kid just said. Because <laughs> they could all speak English, the, right. the teachers. You right, know. right. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> is she deaf and dumb? Because that's all she ever says. <laughs> Hopefully by the end you knew a few other things. Yeah, but one time they were singing around that I knew one of the, the English rounds, I can't think what it was now, and I said to the teacher, could I sing against them? So they started the round, and I sang, and they were just oh, they like, riveted. but then they laughed, because they said, what a funny, funny language she has, language she has, it doesn't, is that Russian? No, <laughs> what I was teaching. Oh, my word. So I had some cute experiences, too. The kids were cute. Wow, I can't even imagine. It sounds like a movie. Well, this is what people say. I say, when well, I'm telling you the truth. Right. What, what I didn't tell you is when I left uh, Russia, when I left Moscow, I was on a Hungarian plane because I was going into Budapest. Malev, it caught fire. One of the, they, it was, uh, what? I, it was right outside my window. I saw the fire coming out of the, that was a propeller. It was an old plane, you know, that wasn't a jet. And I saw the fire. Of course, others saw the fire. There were 14 other Hungarians on the plane. I was the only foreigner. It was a small plane. And no one talked to me, of course, because they didn't know who I was. Right. I could have been a spy. Yep. But the stewardess came down, and, and then she said to me in English, then the Hungarians knew that I was English at least, she said, Madam, as you can see, this, this, uh, the plane is on fire. That's how we got to land in the Ukraine. I was in Kiev. Oh. So she said, we're landing in, in Kiev. It's Kiev, the way they say it. We say Kiev, it yeah, isn't Kiev, it's Kiev. We're landing in Kiev, and they're going to repair the plane. Well, we were there for six hours, and Missy, I could write a book just on what I saw, 
how the Hungarians were mistreated. Now, nobody really? knew nobody knew of the people letting us off the plane that there was a foreigner on the plane because they, so we, they were coming, you were... we were coming from the music conference, so they assumed that I was with them, was mm -hmm. one of them. But anyway, how they were pushed around. If you needed to go to the restroom, somebody had to go with you, a guard or somebody was walking. They didn't offer them. Uh, this is one thing that really got me, this ugly American. I understand that now. A plane, a TWA landed, and they were just, what are we doing here with not such nice language? Sure, sure. You know, what? why have we landed here? What are, what are we doing here? What, what's going on? And the, the Russians were bowing and scraping and put them in a restaurant, fed them a meal. <sighs> the Hungarians just probably got a glass of water. Wow. And I saw all this because we were there for six hours. I also saw the literature, horrible literature, why the Jews eat their children. Oh. They, had, they had pamphlets of, of propaganda that was, would turn your stomach. Oh. And of course, a lot against the Americans too, you know. So I took a copy of each. Because when I got back, I sent it to the State Department. Look at you! <laughs> and I got a letter from the State Department thanking me. They did not know that that literature was in the airport at, in, in the Kiev in the Ukraine. Sister so, Luna, that's crazy. So, but anyway, of course, and the Russians wanted you to take it because, you know, right. you were informing Pat, yourself of all these, yeah. all these, around, everything too. in English, you know. But anyway, now here's the story that it, that's hard for people to believe. We were there six hours while they fixed the plane. Obviously, they didn't have another plane. So when it was time to board, one of the Hungarian ladies came over to me and she said, Madam, we, we're going to tell you something. You're going to disappear inside the Soviet Union. Because I was all by myself. She said, are you English? And I said, no, I'm American. She said, for sure, you're going to be disappearing. Because nobody had looked at my passport when I got off. But they were going to look at the passport when I boarded. Right. Okay, and I had a passport cover with a big gold eagle on it like this. So she said, you better go last. But she said, I want your name, your full name, where you were born, and the, the date of your birth, who your parents were, so that we can call the American embassy when we get back to Budapest and tell them there's an American woman detained in the Ukraine. So she was convinced you were not going to be allowed she said, on the plane. She said, you'll disappear. She used the word. You will disappear inside the Soviet Union. No one will ever hear of you again. Uh-oh, are you mad at me? I made a cliffhanger. <laughs> Wait until you hear what happens next in the story. There is certainly never a dull moment with Sister Lorna, and I just feel so blessed to have been able to hang out and talk with her. Now for today's Ask Me Anything. Melinda W. from Colorado asks me, I would like to know how you personally create work-life balance. <laughs> I just have to laugh when I read that. Especially with all of your online presence. I'm curious about the day-to-day -day balancing act. Well, first of all, let me just say, <laughs> that just makes me laugh because honestly, I don't have a great balance, but I'm still alive and that's a good sign, right? Well, you've heard me say this before. I only do about five things really well. That's not an understatement. And one of those five things is multitasking, which I've always been good at. Uh, as I've gotten older and my brain is turning to mush, it's getting a little bit harder. But by God's grace, I'm juggling my plates fairly well most of the time. But I know there are people who see me all over the place online because... They always say it to me. How can you do that? How are you posting on Instagram and all this stuff? Well, let's harken back to those five things I'm good at. Because honestly, when it comes to online stuff, it's just really, really easy for me to do. I wish I was good at something like math or art or being kind to people. But I am very good at being on social media. It's such a dumb thing, but it's the truth. It's not difficult for me to dash out five responses in 10 minutes um, to pretty hefty questions. It's very rare that I feel overwhelmed by it. And I just attribute that to my insane need to talk and process out loud and the fact that, quite honestly, I'm a really fast typer. I think also... I have this huge compulsion to help teachers who feel alienated or 
sad or confused. And that really helps me have this constant online presence. The truth, though, is the, the key to my being able to do all this stuff at one time, especially as a working mom, is my amazing husband, Jeremy, who also directs and edits this program. And he homeschooled our four children and worked from home while doing it. He's a fantastic musician. And he has been an unbelievable and honestly quite unshakable support to me for all these years. Starting from the time when we had our first baby, Ethan, Jeremy has been an equal partner in our day-to-day life endeavors, and often way more than 50%. So that's one huge way I can keep balance, because if I had to come home every day and do the things that most of you have to do when you get home, I would pass out, and that's the truth. But Jeremy kind of clears the path for me to have like a quiet space, or if I'm having a meeting, he's just really wonderful. Um, And so thank you, Jeremy. Love you. The other thing that really helps is that almost every day, there's a point at which I know it's time to just put the work away and maybe read a book, hang out with my kids, go on Facebook, watch a show with the family. I am a hard worker, but I am also a person who completely shuts down for my own mental health. So anyway, those are the things that kind of keep me sane. So thanks for your question. And if anyone else has a question uh, you'd like me to answer or something you've wondered, please send it to the show at tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave it on our Facebook page or on Twitter or Instagram. As always, if you want to find out more about Dr. Fireabbott and his programs and resources, uh, visit giamusic.com slash And as always, I hope you will consider becoming a member of the Fireabbott Association for Music Education, which you can visit at fireabbottmusic.org. Thank you so much for spending your time here. I hope it was helpful. I hope you were able to laugh or gasp along with me as you heard some of the parts of Sister Lorna's life. I hope you'll tune in for our next episode to learn more about Sister Lorna and her escapades. Uh, But until then, keep doing all you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world.